Welcome, B-Movie fans, to another B-Movie interview. I am Paul, and joining me today is writer and director Thomas Nagovin. He's here to talk about his upcoming film, Aurora. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, what first inspired you to become a filmmaker? Oh, my God. Um, I mean, who wouldn't want to be? You know, it's, it's ever since I was a little kid, you know, that's what we do, is you play, and you imagine worlds, and you imagine things happening, and... Uh, I'm just happy to have, uh, had the opportunity to, to make something that at least for half an hour kind of shows people what it's like inside my head. Definitely cool. Good answer. That's a very, very interesting way of putting it. <laughs> it was off the cuff. I'll try to be that. Now the bar's high. <laughs> yeah, because filmmaking is kind of like, um, play as like, um, playing and imagining only as an adult, so it's like kind of keeping the childhood spirit and uh, spirit alive in a way. Yeah, I have a four-year-old now, and so part of why, <clears throat> excuse me, part of why we made this kind of movie is, you know, my tastes started to get pretty extreme. Uh, you know, as far as what you can tolerate, especially if you're into horror and things like that, and it's like you know, gore and stuff just doesn't even register. And then you start having this little person walking around, and it's it's funny because, like, my gallery was doing Clive Barker exhibitions, and so this kid was two years old, <clears throat> walking around looking at these giant monster paintings, kind of raising one eyebrow and not really thinking anything of it. But you start to, I mean, I guess I'm putting that down in case he turns out to become a corporate banker or something, we can trace it to that point. But, you know, you, you, you look at, like, all of the input, and you're like, well, gosh, what is it that's happening? And <clears throat> now that he loves watching things on a screen, I started to think about, well, gosh, what could I make that would be exciting for me as an adult but would be something that I could show him? And so we started thinking about, things like the old Twilight Zone episodes and old Westerns and the stuff that I grew up on that I loved so much. And, you know, just there's definitely, you know, it's, it's certainly not okay for a four-year-old. This is like a, a PG-13. But, um, you know, it was, I guess it was the idea of watching him play and wanting to create these worlds and then thinking about, gosh, well, what, what could I show to him that might inspire him the way I was inspired to tell stories when I would watch these things when I was, you know, maybe 10, 12 years old. So that's why, that's the reason why the kid playing thing comes straight to mind. It's just because it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a big part of why the first thing I did was this kind of 1950s homage and not, you know, a uh, lesbian vampire movie or something like that. <laughs> Definitely cool. It's like that's a definitely a good way of um, like I guess you never know when you, where how you'll come up with ideas. They just kind of develop, but that's it's definitely a good, um, really nice kind of um, way of putting it. We actually had um, a while back a chat called um, "Being a Parent and um, Being a Horror Fan," and I had one. I had um, a filmmaker named Daniel Young. He's um, located in Britain, but he he has four kids, and he was telling me about how he make how making horror films while having kids and um, definitely some interesting stuff. I don't yet have kids, so I'm looking forward to that day when they discover uh, <laughs> my weird taste in, in films. <clears throat> well, you think about it differently. Like my, my son's first Thanksgiving, uh, he wound up coming up to Clive Barker's house. And so it's just like you think about just the weird stuff that we take for granted and so, you know, and then there's Clive Barker, then there's also the fact that 
um, you know, I work with so many artists that do, maybe they're not like horror, but you know, big kind of intimidating oil paintings and things like that. And you really, really notice it when like, uh, people come over with their kids. There's like, I'm looking right now, there's a, a big drawing. We let my son pick whichever, you know, art things he wants for his big playroom. We're lucky that we have this little nook off of our living room that could be where the toys go. And he's got this bunny that's ripping its skin open and it's got all its flesh attached to these strings, which have birds flying off of it. And then a big portrait of Jim Rose of the Jim Rose sideshow holding razor blades. And then he's got a little kitten with a blue bow and a boat. So out of those four things, two of them are pretty alarming when people bring their kids over. <laughs> it's like the kids are going to go play in the playroom. And it's like, what is that bunny doing? Oh, here, look at this dinosaur or something like that. <laughs> So, yeah, so I, you know, you just, you do start to notice that and it's, you know, we, we're all surrounded by, I mean, again, like if you love, like I do horror and, and all of that stuff, it's, uh, it's interesting how much we just completely let it get into our head and don't, uh, maybe this is almost a better way to put it. That that's something I'm noticing. It's just that it's, it's been so rare that I'm around people who aren't okay with it. You know, like it's not normal for me to have a neighbor over. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then the neighbor comes over with their kid and they're like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Are you guys decorated for Halloween? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's like, August. No. <laughs> it's really big Halloween fans. They're getting ready it really early, like early. All the time. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we just, it's like Nightmare Before Christmas time here. <laughs> But, you know, it, it's not the reason, I mean, the real reason that we did the Aurora story is just because, um, I mean, you know, part of the <clears throat> way it was presented is because of what I said. But also you think about, like, what are we into when we're kids? And what's, how do you trace it back to the root? And the root of everything that we love in any of these kind of genres is the mystery, right? You know what I mean? It's... It's reading books about ghost stories, and you don't know what it is, or reading even science fiction. Like, I mean, I love Isaac Asimov, but I was always way more turned on by the ones that had, uh, you know, a little bit more, a little, a little darker bits of mystery, you know, where it was, uh, I don't know alien invade like childhood you know childhood's end or something is a good example where it's like it's a little bit more kind of metaphysical and uh i have no idea if you read that book i realized it's a uh, <laughs> but, i've i knew of yeah, it i've read i've read all of isaac asimov so it's kind of um giving kind of a, that gives a pretty good um idea of what what probably it has in it more of um where isaac asimov was talking about the world and the future and things like that yeah uh, like I mean, I sort of thing, more not, things more personal yeah, to human I, beings yeah i mean look I, I guess that the point i was trying to make is just that i love futurism but i even more love the idea of um us not knowing the real story behind things and those weird ghost stories and weird horror stories and so that's you know, where this kind of dips its toe into the horror realm is that it's, it's, uh, visually very influenced by universal monsters and structurally very influenced by the twilight zone. Um, and overall there's, there is that, uh, you know, maybe it was Lovecraft decades ago, maybe today it would be someone like Grant Morrison, the idea of, of how do time and dimension and space kind of overlap and uh, how many conspiracy theories can you fit into a 30-minute period? That's another big, a big element that I'm a fan of. Definitely. Like, were you familiar with D. Glock? Do you know what D. Glock is? Um, I don't recall. <clears throat> well, what's funny about having done some of these podcasts is that there are some people that are so, like, if you do a UFO podcast, they're like, oh, yeah, D. Glock, the Nazi time travel machine. <laughs> locks in and then I'm talking and you're like oh yeah Arthur C. Clarke uh, or you know um, but so the 
something that happened in the 1940s is that people thought that the UFO sightings were actually German anti-gravity aircraft, that they had developed a new type of engine that allowed for, um, you know, vertical takeoff. And because it was a uh, machine based on anti-gravity, that there were some elements of them experimenting with dimensional travel as well. Hitler was super, super influenced by occult ideology. And so that was something that, like, this, there are these drawings of the spaceship as it supposedly existed, and it's this bell-shaped craft covered in runes. And so it's kind of like this weird, mystical, Doctor Strange flying saucer. And so there's a huge, huge undercurrent. Like, this is not just a margin um, that believes that that's what flying saucers in the 40s were, were these Nazi spacecraft. And so our idea with Aurora um, was what if this actual genuine newspaper report from 1897 was connected to these 1940s sightings? Like what if they were the same thing? Like when you look at reports from the turn of the century and then the 40s and the 80s, and so our kind of theory is what if they're all the same thing, but it's not aliens. Definitely a cool idea. Definitely um, not one I've I've never heard one quite like that, but I I definitely like it. Um, from what I've uh, seen and read, Aurora uh, pays homage, like you said, to Universal Monsters, but in the style of David Lynch, which sounds really really cool. But um, could you um, could you explain that a little more um, for people who may not be familiar with Universal Monsters or David Lynch? Um, well, Universal Monsters was, um, I mean, one way that I can kind of explain uh, some of it even more specifically relating to Aurora is that, that you got to think about the early days of television when it was just live feeds before tapes. And so the earliest television programs were, were more inspired by theater than they were anything like today people can be influenced by movies. But in the 30s and 40s, uh, 40s and 50s, I mean, really, really so, so much of it was coming off of the theater. So when you look at a lot of 1950s television and even cinema, it still has a very um, stage presentation. And so something that we uh, were big fans of is we knew that we had a really limited budget. And so, okay, you visualize this big Steven Spielberg kind of science fiction movie with monsters and Nazi time travelers. And, and then you start to dial it back to what, you know, what, could, what would they have done before they had all that kind of money and effects? And then that's when we got into the 50s idea. Um, and so then that's, you've got that foundation. And then visually... You've got all this beautiful German expressionist cinema that kind of culminated in these Universal Monsters movies in the 50s. So because they were black and white, everything is about shapes and the way that they um, relate on the screen. It's, it's a, a different kind of way of painting with color and light. And so the David Lynch connection is that in our movie, everybody eats pie. No, that was a David Lynch joke. Sorry. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, are, are they eating chickens that like um, start dancing randomly, or they're um, lizard babies? The uh, the thing is, like David Lynch is someone that's a very, very visual artist uh, that's not afraid to to get a little eccentric with it, and so that we approach this along the lines of, okay, what if David Lynch had been handed a Twilight Zone episode? You know, what if you look at Eraserhead or if you look at um, like what Jodorowsky was doing with Dune, you know, how would you approach this? And so like our Nazi spacesuit was designed by a painter named Brahm that's probably the most famous fantasy painter alive. We, <clears throat> for the monster suit, uh, went to the guys that, two guys that won face off, but we also worked with 
uh, some really fantastic artists, you can read about it on the website, that developed that for us. So we really, really tried to make sure that we pulled as much, you know, quote unquote, fine art into this as we could. Even our release poster is by Dave McKean, the artist behind the Arkham Asylum graphic novel and all the Sandman covers for Neil Gaiman. So every part of this is just really, really insanely art directed. And um, I've definitely had two sets of responses. If someone's into like really, really traditional uh, Hollywood fare, they look at the trailer and they're like, oh, it's a little outdated. And then they look at the movie poster and they're like, why is it so, I don't know, creepy or or something like that, whatever it is. Um, And then the opposite is people losing their minds over, uh, I mean, if you look at some of the testimonials that we've had, like Neil Gaiman just tweeted about it three times in 24 hours. Gerard Way gave us a great thing. Uh, Guillermo tweeted it. There's a buddy of mine, Morg, who uh, was on the AMC Freak Show television show, and he called and left me a voicemail. He's like, I watched your trailer. It was fucking awesome. And then there's a famous Detroit DJ that uh, just posted. I saw it today, and I don't even know him. He just posted. He said, this shit looks dope. So it's like I think if people are like into the arts and into you know, kind of the subculture stuff at all, the reaction's been unbelievably great. And then if you're into like, you know, really hardcore straight stuff, uh, you absolutely don't get it. So I suspect <laughs> that, that, you know, anyone listening to this is going to be into the, you know, the, the cooler, the cooler fringe stuff. That's a little more, a little more artistic. Elias marriage who, uh, did Shadow the Vampire and Begotten gave me a great quote that's up on the website. And uh, another guy who created a TV show, Salem, for WGN, his name's Adam Simon. He loves it. He gave us a great quote. So that's one of the things that's been really rewarding about this is, is people have only been looking at it for, I don't know, a month now. And there's already been a dozen people I really respect that have chimed in with praise so that's a really good thing definitely and i think with um the way movies are made now where everything's so predictable and stunned by the numbers i think movies like yours and um others like that are very much needed now because it's like showing what film can be instead of just what we've kind of come to expect from going to the movies yeah i definitely hit every bullet point for things people would not invest in that is absolutely black and white, Western, Nazis, <laughs> rubber monster suit, like literally every bullet point that would be a no on any reasonable <laughs> investor's checklist. I hit all of them. Um, but, you know, the results I'm super, super proud of. And that's why we're doing this Kickstarter is because we filmed it. Everything is done except for these last bits of, um, you know, like the, the color grading, you do have to do some color grading, even though it's black and white and the audio mastering and stuff like that. And just getting, uh, kind of the last round of people paid so that we can get this across the finish line so that everyone can hear about it instead of just hearing us uh, talk about it. Definitely. Sue. What qualities do you think make a great film? And could you give us some examples of films that you would consider great? Huh. Um, I watch, I watch different movies for different reasons. Um, I remember, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of research on silent films because I, I love, love those visuals so deeply. And I remember, funnily enough, it was actually Dave McKean was uh, at my house years ago and looked at my library and uh, said, I'm really surprised. I really thought your library would be like a wall of criterion collection. And he said, I didn't expect you to have house money. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so... I've watched a lot. No, I because so much of, of the books that I write are about um, things like early cinema. 
Uh, I definitely love uh, movies for different reasons at different times. So that's why, you know, it's hard for me off the cuff to be like, oh, of course, Citizen Kane, you know, or things like that. But I think that probably more than anything, if I'm really, really looking at something, uh, I'm, I'm just taking different parts from it. Like, I'm, I'm really hard-pressed. Like, what do you think is a perfect movie? Um, that is a really tough question. I'd say a perfect movie is actually... Um, see, I, I watch so many low-budget films that, like, they're, like I, I feel like I have kind of have an appreciation for most films. I'd say a perfect movie is probably um, John Carpenter's The Thing, just because you learn just enough about it, but oh my God, you never yeah. really know what's going to happen. And <clears throat> there's... You're not really supposed to. You're just... Um, I, I love the setting. I love the characters, and it... It does. It doesn't tell you too much, which I really like about films. And did you know? I just learned this the other day. Did you know that that movie completely tanked when it came out? I heard that. I was um I was watching it I, um the day before Halloween, and I looked up. I was on the the Wikipedia page for it. I'm like, really? How? <laughs> yeah, John Car- John Carter, John Carpenter was talking about. He said, "God, if that movie had been successful, my life would have been so different." And I started looking into it, and I was like, oh, my God, how did this movie not, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of a good example of if you do something that everybody gets and everybody loves, it doesn't have any guarantee that it's going to have longevity. Because, yeah, I mean, The Thing is definitely a perfect movie. The kind of things that come to my brain when I'm thinking of a perfect movie are more like, you know, stuff like Dead Poets Society, just kind of, I think, because I'm more tuned in to those <clears throat> kind of stories. And when I think of, um, I mean, God, I'm sure if I sat and thought about it, I mean, I don't think I've been more excited uh, for any movie as I am about the new Thor film. So it's certainly not like I sit around and watch Ivan Passer films all day. But, uh, you know, the idea of seeing, I mean, I think maybe that's that's where my hesitation is coming in, is that, it's like what makes a perfect meal? Like whatever your mom made for you was perfect. You know what I mean? Like when you're 20 years later, there may be some kind of pie that may not be the pie that is the best, you know, to Gordon Ramsay. But to you, it's like this is a perfect, perfect pie. And so for me, things like this new Thor film, like growing up in the 70s on Marvel comics and just never imagining you'd ever get to experience anything like that cinematically. To me, that's really exciting. And, uh, I think a lot of, um, I don't know. I definitely, I feel like I I see a lot of people on two sides of this, which is like, okay, these kind of movies are dumb and these kind of movies are smart. And then I see, um, you know, I just I don't I don't see as many people kind of respecting that, you know, that analogy that I gave about the food, which is that, uh, you know, different things are perfect for different people. And <clears throat> it doesn't mean that I mean, like Captain America, Winter Soldier, if you had just called that, like if you took the suit off him and put a spy thing on, it would have been a perfect, perfect 70s spy film. You know, I don't. I mean, I don't, you know, it's. I guess people are saying that about Logan with it being like a western. And so I think that's uh, that's why it's hard to to call a movie perfect. Like you know, one of my favorite movies is this movie called Haunted Summer, which I don't mean like seventeen people on the planet have seen this movie. It's got uh, Eric Winter from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure playing John Polidori's or playing a. Lord Byron's doctor in the 1800s. I mean, it's a weird, <laughs> it's a very like weird movie, but it's great. Alice Kreese, who played the Borg Queen, plays Mary Shelley, and uh, Eric Stoltz plays Percy Shelley, Philip Anglum, and Laura Dern are Byron and Claire Claremont. I mean, I love that movie, but I've had people fall asleep when I try to make them watch it. <laughs> so it's like, you know, why? Why do yeah. people love it? 
It's kind of like with um, the movie Blade Runner. It's one one of my favorite films, but uh, my co-host Corey said he falls asleep every time he watches it. So. Oh no! You know, I, I saw Blade. I saw the was it twenty forty nine? Uh yeah. There was a twenty forty seven. I watched it last night. I loved it. It was really good. I mean, that's kind of a good example of why did that movie tank? You know, like. You know. It's weird because, like, um, I was reading something. I don't know. I think it's, like, worldwide, but, like, it did worse than the Emoji movie. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, um, I mean, I get it. I get it. But when I, and my why did that tank is just kind of like it's idiocracy. It's the idea. I mean, that was a beautiful movie. It was beautiful. I didn't look at my watch once. And then I got out, and it was four days later, and I was like, what the fuck? Like, it was such a long movie but it was so beautiful. It was like being inside of this dystopian painting. And I loved it. It was perfectly done. Um, I could dissect my criteria, you know, but, you know, it was certainly a, a nine on a scale from one to ten. There's no question that it's it's next level filmmaking, but that's not what people want. Like, I, you know, did you see It? You must have seen It, right? Yeah, I saw uh, like, the remake, right? Or... Uh... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I didn't, I, it was fine. I, I thought that, uh, uh, was, is it Bill Skarsgård? Is it he that? I believe I can't so. Remember, or, I can't, well, but whoever, the guy that played the clown knocked it out of the park. I mean, he was creepy as fuck. He was so good. But I wish they'd given him more like the way they gave Tim Curry. Like, I thought he was way scarier than Tim Curry, but they didn't give him anything really to do with it. It was just a lot of kind of, you know, freaky-deaky. But I was talking to this friend of mine, and we were talking about that and Blade Runner. And he said, here's the thing, man. Everybody that I work with is going to go see it. He said, maybe there's two sci-fi nerds that are going to go see Blade Runner. And I was like, ah, oh, that's right. You know, the freaky, scary clown chasing kids. Like, everybody will go see it. But not, you know, and that's why we have so much of that kind of stuff and, and not many Blade Runners. That's true. It's kind of like when they made, um, I was, when I think about stuff like that, when they made the iRobot movie, um, it's completely different from the Asimov stories. And I hated it because of that. It's like it, you made an, an, action, an action film yeah, out it was, of Yeah, that um, was an action movie, right? Yeah. Whereas the other ones are more like intellectual about like what the world would of robots would be like, and I'm like, really, that's what you made out of it? Like, but I guess well, that's this, what people people want to say. Something I just watched recent. Did you see Cloud Atlas? I didn't. People keep uh, requesting it to me, but I haven't gotten around to seeing it yet. So <clears throat> I wanted to see it. I, I didn't get a chance. I think I was moving at that time, and then. Um, you know, and then hearing such bad things about the, what's the other movie, Jupiter Ascending? Oh, yeah. And I just yeah, thought, yeah. God, man, like, you know, I don't know. Like, I really, I loved the first Matrix. I could have done without the second, too. And I just thought, well, maybe, you know, I mean, maybe they just kind of got off planet with their work. And so um, I wound up watching Cloud Atlas and it was unbelievably moved by how ambitious it was and i a couple people of mine that are really serious from people have had critiques about it well you know because it tried to do this but it could have been this and i'm like i don't know man for me i have an unbelievably deep respect for the wachowskis for making that movie it was absolutely like what we we're just talking about with irobot like i mean they they i didn't know anything about the book but I mean, they really, really used cinema as a way to help make people perceive time differently. It was really, it was really good. Certainly not for everybody, but a good example of, I hope that companies keep losing money on movies like that, because without that, it's going to completely become idiocracy. Like, love it or hate it, Cloud Atlas absolutely pushed the bar. It really did. It was really very beautiful. Did you see Idiocracy? Do you know that reference? Um, I, that's the one by Mike Judge, right? The guy who made uh, King of the Hill. 
Yes. I, I've seen parts of it. Like people have sent me clips of it, but I've never actually sat down to watch it. But I know the general plot. Basically, um, humanity becomes dumber because the uh, smart people either don't breed or die yeah. out. It's, it might, there's, I, I don't know that I could recommend a movie more highly for you. <laughs> like in terms of like, you know, as a guy that watches movies and all this stuff, like, and you know, it's, uh, it's yeah. painful. It's painful. It's really, really, really good and very funny, but uh, it's very close to home in our current yeah political climate. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty. It's yeah, watch it. Really, <laughs> yeah, you gotta watch it. I'll definitely check that out. It's kind of like when you briefly mentioned um, Neil Gaiman's a Sandman. I found out they were making a movie about that. I'm like, oh no. I I mean I I'll, I'd like to I'll see it because I I love the series it's um I've all the volumes of it I've got the um the um endless um nights uh, volume and it's absolutely beautiful mm-hmm. but I'm like a film version I feel like they'd miss the point unless they had like a really interesting directorial style and even then I I'm like I I, I maybe it's best if they don't make it but I I don't know, I shouldn't judge something before it's made but. It's kind of like um, there's a show I, I really liked called uh, Death Note, and they made a live-action American version, and it was horrible. I'm like, I knew that was going to happen. Like, <laughs> yep, called it years ago. Well, do you, you know, Death Note was a comic, right? Yeah, it was a comic and an anime. Did you watch the uh, – you know, I never watched the anime. I, I read the comic, and then I watched the three uh, films. And, the, uh, and I was really excited when Death Note – I think it was on Netflix or something. Yeah. Super excited, and I was like, "Oh my God, Willem Dafoe as Ryuk!" Like I was like, "Oh my God, this is going to be great!" And oh, I wanted to just put a pencil through my forehead at the end of that movie that completely gutted anything about it that was interesting. Oh yeah, to me, it just didn't do anything. So I, I yeah, it, it's but it's hard. I mean, look at the Death Note storyline. It's it part of the beauty of it is the way that it plays out and interlaces and all of these elements and you know the i think sandman i you know they've been trying to make a sandman movie for 25 years now so as someone a little bit older um i'm not ready to get out of my chair with the picket sign yet because (laughs) i've seen this uh we've been in this place i mean it was even two years ago three years ago it was it was up like okay this is going to happen now and then it went away again and the only thing that i would say is that the way that episodic television is now like american gods is a really good example that i just i think that people respect neil gaiman enough now that if something isn't going to go right that they'll listen to him and not, like i don't, i can't imagine them doing it without his seal of approval even though legally they don't have to i just can't imagine that you know number one i mean obviously he's going to be vocal about if he thinks it's right or not and and second i just i don't think they would do it unless he said okay yeah i do feel like you guys cracked the code definitely who wants who you know who wants like watchman version of sandman oh man you know yeah, it's like it's, it's not like typical comic stuff. It's like you you would like I, I hate to feel like uh, see um who's the guy who directed um uh, Superman versus um versus Batman um not not to knock him he's got his own <laughs> style but it's like it would be the completely wrong style for that. It's like it's not supposed to look like a comic um a comic panel. It's um it's a whole world and it's, I mean it's but, so funny that, you, that I look I I usually. Like, I feel like any movie getting made is a miracle unto itself. And I really do have that belief system of um, respecting that every movie means something different to somebody different. Just because I hate something doesn't mean they're not going to love it. And I went to see uh, the first Superman movie. I was so, so, so excited. And we left the theater and I was really quiet. And my girlfriend turned to me and said, so, so what do you think? I said, there are two rules in the DC universe. Batman doesn't use guns and Superman doesn't kill. 
and and then it just was downhill from there. <laughs> like the little bits that I caught a Batman with his machine gun and everything else. So I just I'm trying to pretend that the the DC movies don't exist. Yeah, I'll stick with the cartoons for most of this. Oh, did you? And and I read this thing just two days ago. Uh, someone posted this on Facebook, uh, a comic writer friend of mine, and it was Gal Gadot, who did a great job in the Wonder Woman movie. But she was talking about in Batman versus Superman her appearance, and then she said, and then when we started to work on the Wonder Woman movie. It was like, oh, she's got this backstory. Like, who knew? And the, my friend that posted the thing said, um, we all, everybody who's been reading the comics for the last 80 years knew. And so just the fact that someone would play a character in a movie, but then not know their backstory until the second film, like, I don't know, just, I just feel like that's kind of how all those DC movies feel to me. They just feel like... They're making a movie, kind of like the iRobot thing. They're going to make these action movies, and they're just going to put names on the characters, and they're not really concerned about what they represent. I feel like that's where Marvel really knocks it out of the park. Like, you know, their Doctor Strange is Doctor Strange. It's not, you know, they don't have a character named Doctor Strange that turns into a a beast, you know, like, oh well, that would be the Hulk. Like you know what I mean? They just they keep their characters. Yeah, they kind of in the pantheon. Yeah, they kind of understand their characters and their stories better than um, it seems like DC does. Unfortunately, um. well, I mean the other thing too is this: I know when you're at any studio like that, there's so many chefs in the kitchen, and I'm just you know. So rather than completely be. You know, like when people ask me, oh, are you going to go see the Justice League movie? I'm like, no. I mean, I didn't see Batman versus Superman. I watched parts of it, but, you know, enough to not want to. But then, yeah, like, you know, I'll go see Thor this weekend. I feel like they just... So that's like, you know, coming back again to the what's a great movie. It's like there are lots and lots of people that want to watch video games play out on the screen for 90 minutes. And... uh as long as they're spending money, people keep making it. And in the meantime, I'm going to make black and white Westerns with monsters and rubber suits. And, uh, it'll be very clear which one makes billions of dollars and which one makes hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Well, I feel like the world needs a a mix of both. (laughs) I think I feel like the world needs a mix of both, (laughs) but I feel like the monetary uh, stuff, um, doesn't really, I don't think it's a good measurement of whether or not it's a good film overall. I think it's um, just... No, look at the thing. Yeah, exactly. And Blade Runner, dude. You're, yeah, that's, your, <laughs> yeah. that's your key. You love movies that absolutely tanked people's box office careers. That's your... Because, you know, Blade Runner tanked, too. Yeah, that's, that's another one where it's like... I remember, like, thinking, how? How did that do so poorly? And, like, well... yeah. I guess now it's um, kind of viewed better. Because it was smart as fuck. You know, people were not... A movie like that only worked after people were able to really sit and think about it. And it's so much worse now. Everything in our Twitter feed is like two second, two second, two second, two second. You know? So, of course, the new Blade Runner movie isn't going to work with the majority of the way people are being trained. If you look at... Even just the way we're programmed with our phones, like all of that is meant to move further down our brainstem and just like grab attention, grab attention. And so, yeah, like, you know, we've got long monologues in our movie. There's all kinds of things that that's, I think, the reason why some of the more artistically minded are, are keying into it because it's like, well, why do you become an artist? Why do you love creative things? And a perfect example is look at your two favorite movies, really super thoughtful movies that they're going to be talking about 30 years from now. And no offense to the guys that made it, but like, they're not going to be talking about it 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe because it's Stephen King, but not, not because of the movie. And you know, John Carpenter's The Thing is, is like, it's like Chinatown. 
you know, like it's the, that movie is and when it comes to horror movies, I mean, really, I'm really hard pressed to think of a better movie than the thing. Oh yeah. Like even the fact at the end that you don't know who's what, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, it's 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 brilliant. It's absolutely like um, and you go back through and you're like, but he did this. Then oh yeah, absolutely. I mean that's that's rare. Everybody wants everything spelled out. So yeah, those are. I do really think it's funny that you're the two movies you've mentioned as loving are ones that completely. Not only, I mean, yes, they're classics, but that they also tanked <laughs> the box office. Yeah. I guess I, I'd be really bad at betting whether or not a movie was successful yeah, exactly. or not. <laughs> if you got, love it, then I'm taking my money and putting it somewhere else. Probably the best, probably your best bet. Um, have you ever, um, there's a writer, I've, um, Harlan Ellison, the guy who wrote. Um, oh, uh, my God. He he actually wrote a version. I, I have I have a copy of it uh, somewhere, but he wrote a copy of um, a screenplay for iRobot, and it's amazing. It's really good. It completely gets Asimov's. Uh, I think Asimov oh. actually wrote the form for, word for it. And then I saw what we got. I'm like, how? Like why? I haven't read it, but I mean Harlan Ellison is. Uh, you know, he is known as being one of the warmest and kindest science fiction writers ever. Oh, totally. That also is a joke. Oh, yeah. He's a notorious asshole. But, uh, oh, my God, one of one of the most talented writers we've ever had. Oh, yeah. I Have No Mouth, But you, I'm a Scream is, is a fantastic story. Um, he's, got a, he's got a ton of them. I've got a bunch of his shorts um, in my, um, like, all over. Yeah, no, he's he's actually just read this trilogy. It was, um, I guess, that there was a, a prequel to a boy and his dog, and then he'd written uh, a sequel that hadn't been published or something. I'm not sure what it was, but so I just read those three the other day, and uh, I mean, like, literally in the last couple months, and just was remembered again, like how how gifted he is with using language as a paintbrush. I'm definitely, definitely a Harmon Ellison fan. Oh, yeah. There's a story he wrote a while back. Um, it's, I, I can't remember for the life of me what, what it's called, but it's a very simple story. A guy, like, um, he dies and he goes into this other world and he's, like, um, traveling. But the way he describes everything with colors and things like that, people asked him, like, were you on an acid trip? He goes, no, I just, I thought it was pretty straightforward. <laughs> I'm like, that's yeah, amazing. No, I'm a, I'm a good writer. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Because oh, yeah. that's that is one of the things about Lovecraft, though, is that, man, that is some of the most painful literature in the world to read. And then after it's done, you have so much, you know, visuals in your head that when you read when you're done reading it, it's uh, a beautiful experience. But, man, it is rough to get through. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've had that experience, but it's it's it, Harlan Ellison is a very easy read. It's very very uh, seductive. That's true. Um, yeah, it, it seems like with Har- Harlan Ellison, it was a lot of like um, from the, um, you really, it's about the person experiencing it. Like um, one of the things I loved about I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream was um, when the ma- when the protagonist is talking about the other characters, he's so angry about them. Like he calls the one woman a whore for really no reason. And it's just like, this is a guy who's he's stuck in this world and he's, he's pissed off. And I, I thought the way he portrayed it was great. It's not like I am looking at this. It's like, no, I'm, I'm mad. I've been tortured for like God knows how long. And, you know, everyone around me sucks. And I'm like, that's fantastic. <laughs> Whereas like with um, Lovecraft, Lovecraft has... Um, as I like, to, I mean, I, I love Lovecraft stories, but every story is the unnamed um, narrator <laughs> and what's going on in it. I'm just laughing at how many times he uses like words like the unnameable, unspeakable. <laughs> oh yeah, he he somehow does it really well. It's like to not describe something, he describes it very well. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Lovecraft fan, um, but I don't. You know, if someone asked me, like, the way we were talking about lyrical language, point blank, you know, I don't know if I would say that I enjoy reading it. I love the stories, and I, I go through it to get the stories. But having just read Harlan Ellison again recently, it was just a reminder of how 
um, how pleasant it can be to read the English language. It was, uh, yeah, just a little different. It's a good way of putting it. So one um, question we always like to ask people, um, actually before that, um, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to create their own independent film? Oh my God, don't do a black and white Western uh, is number one. Number two, the, the, the thing that I would say helped me the most, um, I'm, a, I'm a Kevin Smith fan. I, I definitely was coming of age in the Clerks era. <clears throat> and so watching someone make this movie there's also an earlier one called Hollywood Shuffle, uh, where you know you're talking about two people that made movies where they just put it on their credit cards because they just wanted to get it done. And so the thing that I decided to do with this movie that I feel is good advice is I made the decision that I was just going to do it, and it didn't matter if it was going to be with sock puppets. Like I was just going to do it. And I know a lot of people that are filmmakers that don't really make films. They just kind of talk about what they're going to make. And, you know, decades can go by. And I just think you have to just do it and do better the next time and do better the time after that. So the, the one thing is, is just do it. And then the other is... Um, I'm trying to think, like, know your strengths and play to them. Uh, a good example is that every, every, every step of this process, I had people telling me not to do things. Don't make it black and white. Don't do something in the Wild West. Don't use a rubber monster suit. Um, Funnily enough, no one said don't use Nazis, but you know, but everything like of all the things I'm thinking, people, no one actually flagged that one. But you know, all the things that people say don't, 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 because you know, at the end of it, your name is what goes on it. And so if I said, okay, you know what, I am going to make it color, and then you show it to someone like a Neil Gaiman or a Guillermo del Toro, <clears throat> excuse me, and they say, ah, oh, you know, it's good. And you're like, ah, but you know what? What if I had done this? And they say, well, that would have been great. Well, then who's the asshole? Was it the person who tried to give you advice from a good place or you for listening to it? So I would say, like, respect the people that are giving you advice. Definitely listen to people. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got to make it something that you're proud of. And so those, that's the, those are the two facets to the, the gem. The two sides to the coin are just do it no matter what. And at the end of it, just make it the best that you can so that you're proud of it. Because you're the person that, you know, whether someone loves it or hate it, you don't want to say, oh, well, that's because this other person said I should do this. Very good advice. So I hope so. <laughs> I like that a lot. I said I hope so. It seems to both both of them kind of go together. You kind of cover both bases of just go out and do it, but also like do, like be receptive to things that can be better without like completely um, changing your vision of it. Because a lot of times people may not. I think you got to find like the right people to work with because the right people who will kind of understand and also be able to um, see things on the same um, like wavelength. Yeah, the, I mean one. Like, here's a good example. Like, I'd never made a film before. So we were on the set, and I've got this film crew. I've got a lighting crew. I've got all these actors. We're ready to film the first day. And I look at the actors. I'm like, all right, so what do we do next? <laughs> and, like, and I could imagine that the crew was like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, he has no idea what he's doing. But I... I was close friends with a couple of the actors and the other guys were really cool. And I was like, well, what's your process? Like, what do you guys do that works for you? And so when, when you talk about surrounding yourself with, with people that you trust, I think that's a huge part of it is making sure that you feel safe enough to say, Hey, I don't know what to do, man. There's nothing worse than someone pretending 
and trying to bluster past anybody and then it and it just failing. So like the parts that I didn't know what to do, I was absolutely happy to just say, look, I have no idea what the best way is for us to do this. What do you guys want to do? And they were like, okay, well, let's do this and this and this. But the things that I did know, the art direction, you know, where I wanted to put the camera, where the lights should be. But even then, if someone said, well, hey, what about this? I would say that, you know, at least half the stuff in there were things that had a lot of collaborative energy put into it. You know, someone saying, I mean, like, I didn't, I'm not a lighting guy, you know, but you get someone in there that knows what they're doing and you just say, okay, but, you know, maybe he wants it more brightly lit. And you're like, no, 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 really, I want this. I need this contrast. I need, you know, so that's, that's where it comes in of like, if, if the person is just doing their job, what ends up at the end creatively might not match up with what you wanted. So the point I'm trying to make is that the parts that you don't know, I really, really think you've got to just be um, transparent about that. It's my belief. And then the parts that you do know, that's where you can say, okay, no, I feel really strongly about this. Man, everybody, like so many people told me this should be color, you know, but I was like, but what's the point then? Like, why do it? Like, it needs to be like Universal Monsters. It needs to be like this thing. There's a reason why we did it this way. And, uh, you know, so that's, I guess I'm off on a tangent, but that's just, I guess what I mean about like the stuff you don't know, you've got to be vocal about. And then the stuff that you do know, you got to be vocal about too. Definitely good advice. Like Sun Tzu said, I uh, know thyself. Yeah, what did he know? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a great, there's a quote I love. It's, it's Marcus Aurelius. It's the first rule is to keep an untroubled spirit. And the second is to look things in the face and know them for what they are. And so that's why if I didn't know something, I had no ego around it because this wasn't, no part of making this movie was an ego play. There's two parts in this movie. There's one in particular. There's one thing that happens in the movie that one of the lead actors came up with on set. Ah, you know what you should do? You should do this. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And we did it. And I look at it now and I'm like, I don't know how we would have done it if, if that hadn't happened. It was Jack Campbell. Uh, there's a shot of him that was an extra thing that we added in that was his idea. And there's another thing that he does in the scene, totally, totally unplanned, that uh, later, when you revisit it, mentally, totally, totally made it. And like, you know, what if I'd been a director that was like, no, 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 it's got to stick to the script. It's got to be this. I mean, filmmaking is collaborative. And, and the reason this was such a pleasant experience is I made it with people that really wanted to be there. And so everybody was just enthusiastic. And so that to kind of replay the two points. So what you do is you stir that pot up and you just, you take everything and you put it together and then you just figure out, okay, but this is what I'm going to serve. You know, but if you, if you reject the inclusion of the other ingredients, then, you know, I, I just don't think that, I don't think that works for a new filmmaker. Makes sense. I also like the fact that we got to quote both uh, Sun Tzu and Marcus Aurelius in one interview, so that's pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> this will be one of the smartest interviews that we'll uh, be putting out. <laughs> so, one question we always like to ask people, because Corey and I seem to have, um, this, for some reason this gets brought up between us, and we um, have va vastly different opinions on this, but that is... Um, what is your opinion on hairless cats? What is my opinion on hairless cats? I think that uh, they're excellent uh, movie villains for cartoons. I think that, uh, you know, I have to be honest. I don't know if I've ever pet one. Yeah, I don't think I have either. I feel like I it'd be I don't, weird. I don't know that I have an opinion. I think when I used to live with cats, I was always like, well, what's the point? Because furry, fuzzy, cuddly cats. And then over the years, as I developed a, uh, a cat allergy, I think I would probably feel a lot more attracted to them now 
than in earlier years. I had 13 cats at one point. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I, I, I absolutely love living with animals. And then uh, after I stopped living with 13 cats... I was like, oh, well, that's why I was sniffly all the time. I thought I just had, like, bad. <laughs> like, why do I catch every cold that goes around? It was like, nope, you're allergic. Mystery solved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, science. <laughs> yeah, Corey seems to love hairless cats. As they, he reminds him of the, they remind him of the movie, movie Gremlins. I, I just think they're up to something. I, um, <laughs> That's why, first thing, I'm with you. First thing I said, they make excellent movie villains. I mean, they look. Oh, yeah. They look evil. The analogy I always like to give is um, I'm reminded of in um, Jurassic Park when they're talking about, was it ethical to, you know, bring back dinosaurs? I'm like, well, was it ethical to create a great hairless cat? Like, we went too far with science. You spent so much time thinking about if you could do it, you forgot to ask if you should. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. So when is Aurora scheduled for release and what platforms will we be able to watch it on? Well, if the uh, if we the reason it's taken two years to get to this point is just because it's literally been, you know, favors and and pulling every bit that we can kind of forward um, as best we can. And so the Kickstarter is meant to just grease the last wheel. Uh, so if we hit our goal, the movie will be done before the end of the year for sure. So if that happens, I, you know, we, with short films, you get a little, a little more leeway. Like you can still put it into festivals and things like that. But like, for example, if you make a, a feature length film, festivals don't want to show it if you've released it anywhere else. I didn't, I don't know if you guys know that, but so we probably are just going to try to get it out there as soon as we can. I'm not a hundred percent certain, but, um, I would say as early as January, we would be trying to set up some screenings. I think that before we <clears throat> put it out, you know, for free online or anything like that, that we would be trying to do, uh, some screenings. And then the other thing is there's every possibility that we're going to be trying to talk to someone about getting distribution. Um, and so the reason why I would encourage people, aside from just the support for making it happen, but the reason I would encourage people to buy the Blu-ray DVD sets that we're making are because we're going to cap it and you know, make it a super limited edition so that if we are in talks with someone like a Netflix or something um, that it's not a disc that's available. So the plan is just to, to take the number that we get on Kickstarter, round it up to the nearest hundred, and that's, that's all we're going to make. Um, and so then after that, I don't know. You know, we do want to do some screenings, like I said, and, and, then, and then we'll enter into the, uh, the discussions about, you know, how do you get it out to a wider audience? Sounds good. So, yeah. so where can we follow you to learn more about Aurora and any other projects that you'll be working on in the future? Uh, AuroraFilm.info is the hub that we're using. If you go there, you can uh, get taken directly to the Kickstarter. We're also putting up a blog there with some behind-the-scenes things. Um, and then any screenings... Uh, that we'll be doing any any merchandise, any stuff like that, are all going to be on that website as well. Awesome, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, everybody should check that out. So there you have it, B movie fans. Aurora, a film, an upcoming film about UFOs, Nazis, and all sorts of other cool stuff created by Thomas <laughs> Govan, <laughs> Sun Tzu, and Marcus Aurelius present. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Tom, thank you for joining today. It's been really awesome having oh, you on the thank show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to hearing what you think of the movie. Definitely.
If you have an independent film you're working on and would like to discuss it, you can email us at bmoviebros at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at bmoviebros or my personal Twitter at bmoviepaul. Don't forget to listen to our podcast. We review a different B-movie each week. New episodes every Friday on our website, bmoviebros.com. If you have a movie you'd like us to review or any additional comments, feel free to leave a message below. This has been another B-movie interview. We are the B-movie bros saying... Be brave, be alive, and be back next time.